Welcome to this week's episode of Changing Minds, Moving Forward. This week, we're bringing you the outputs from Independence Live's most recent hop-in conferences, which is all about the defence of Scotland. So it covers myth-busting about what service people can and can't do. It includes different proposals for defence forces, whether we should or shouldn't be part of NATO, and also a discussion on how we encourage more veterans and some serving personnel to move from no to yes. Hope you enjoy it. Hi, everyone. My name is Russ Denny. I'm a former warrant officer in the British Army. I served for 27 years in the armed forces from the age of uh, 17 to the age of 45. Um, And I think what I'd like to do today is start with busting the myth that somehow Scots soldiers wouldn't be allowed or are prohibited from from voting, whether that be in referenda or in uh, elections in general. And the reason I do this is because I've seen in mainstream media uh, the shock stories of troops being denied their voting rights, of not being allowed to uh, to vote in elections that are important to them. And I've seen it in things like The Guardian, The Daily Mail, The Times um, and The Telegraph. And the reason this upsets me kind of so much is because for the last five years of my career, I was the appointed unit electoral registration officer. So I know how, how ludicrous this assertion is. Um, and it was even parroted in, I believe, in The Guardian by such esteemed people as Tom Tuggenhart, the current Tory MP. And the truth is that everyone in the British forces is entitled to register to vote. Even if you're Scottish and you're stationed outside of Scotland, you can register at your address in Scotland. Or you can register an address you used to live in, in Scotland. There's absolutely no difference at all. That applies to serving soldiers. It applies to their family members as well. Um, So if you're the spouse of a soldier, or the child of a soldier, you can also register to vote as a service voter. All you have to do is go online to, uh, well, find, have a Google for Armed Forces Register to Vote, fill in the details, and it's as simple as that. Each registration is valid for five years. It'll allow you to vote in any election those five years. Obviously, if you move house, uh, re-register, and after that five years, you just register again. So can Scots soldiers vote in elections in Scotland? Of course they can. They always could and they will continue to do so. Hi folks, uh, Cliff Purvis here. Welcome to the show. Uh, just a little bit about, uh, about myself. Uh, I am uh, an ex-British Army uh, full cor- uh, corporal. I spent 14 years in the Queen's Own Highlanders and uh, 10 years in the Royal Army Medical Corps. One of the myths I'd like to have a, a wee chat about today is this myth about the undying uh, or unexpired loyalty uh, just because we have taken an oath on joining the army that in some way that uh, expi- uh, does not expire. It's, of course, complete rubbish. We sign a contract for whatever length of time we sign up for. We do our time. We hand in our ID card uh, and we, we crack on uh, with the rest of our life. The detractors of Scottish independence, and especially with uh, veterans supporting independence, are very quick uh, to say that we are being disloyal. Without, of course, mentioning the fact that uh, Westminster uh, in no way, shape or form honours its commitment uh, with the Forces Covenant. So no, being a veteran does not exclude you from having a vote. It does not exclude you from voting who you choose to vote for, making an educated decision on that one. And if by the end of the day you have decided that you want to vote for Scottish independence, then that does not mean you're being disloyal. 
My name's Colin Mill. I served in the Royal Navy from 1972 to 1996. I was a seaman officer in the Navy. I drove ships, commanded a couple of mine of war vessels, second in command of a frigate, but I also flew helicopters. I flew the Sea King from Prestwick, in fact, flew the Wasp from the back of a frigate and was involved in the aftermath of the Falklands campaign. I flew the Lynx from the back of a frigate and destroyer. And I was involved in um, patrolling the Gulf during the Iran-Iraq war, including the tanker war, uh, escorting convoys through the Straits of Hormuz. The myth of Scotland couldn't defend itself as an independent country. Well, while Scotland's been in the UK, it's always actually contributed more than its fair share of people towards the UK's defence. A little snippet I picked up on a, a few years ago when I was in Shetland, and it was that at the Battle of Trafalgar, a quarter of all the Royal Navy sailors in that battle came from Orkney and Shetland. I'll say that again. A quarter of all the sailors involved in the Battle of Trafalgar were from Orkney and Shetland. So Scotland's always contributed more than its fair share of personnel on a population basis. And so in terms of getting the number of people involved won't be a problem going forward. Budgetary. Well, if we are in NATO and we spend the recommended percentage of our GDP on NATO, that would be the equivalent of three billion pounds a year. That's going to be buy a lot of bang for your buck, so we'll be able to afford it. Our location is absolutely critical in the geopolitical terms in the North Atlantic. So those people who say, oh, you won't be allowed to join NATO, that is rubbish. We cover a very critical area, especially with the new, very high-tech Russian submarines that are coming online now, and NATO will not be able to afford to have a gap where our bit of the North Atlantic is. So, of course, we'll be invited to join NATO. And the whole point of mutually defensive alliances is that each contributes according to its means and its situation. Norway has very great amount of national uh, sovereign wealth and it has shares a land border with Russia. So, obviously, it has very strong defence forces. Scotland will pay according to its means and will undertake roles which are commensurate with where it is situated in the world and what strengths it brings to the table. There's already large amounts of NATO infrastructure in place. There are early warning radar stations, which are part of the NATO's European Early Warning Organization. There are fueling jetties, and we have the benefit of having large areas of open airspace where they can do training for uh, training exercises. We've got naval gunnery ranges up at Cape Wrath. So we have unencumbered airspace and sea space, which are essential for training as well. There are niche roles in NATO. There are critical capability gaps in NATO's organisation at the moment. And that's the beauty of small countries, is they, they can concentrate their effort on filling those niche roles uh, within NATO and leave the heavy lifting to the big countries, which have got the financial means to support that part of the organisation. So overall, I'm quite convinced that Scotland would be welcomed with open arms into organisations like NATO. They can't afford to do without us because of our geopolitical situation. We'll have just as much money to spend on our defence as countries like Denmark, which uh, has similar size and geopolitical situation to ourselves. And we'll do our bit and we'll be part of the team. And another myth I'd like to address today 
is this myth that somehow in an independent Scotland, all Scots soldiers would be forcibly removed from the ranks of the British Army, or indeed Scots would be barred from serving in the ranks of the British Army. And it's this point I like to point out that currently 6% of the armed forces, about 6,000 people, are non-UK citizens. They are mainly foreign Commonwealth. Uh, they come from places like Ireland, South Africa, Fiji, Kenya, Nepal, and all these different places. So currently, actually, there's 26 different nationalities serve in the ranks of the British Army. And I believe, uh, although I'd have to fact check this, that quite a large proportion of the recruits for the British Army come from, from Scotland. So while I, of course, would prefer Scots to join the armed forces of an independent Scotland, there is nothing to suggest at the moment that Scots would be barred from serving in the UK forces or Scots already serving would be forced to leave. Hi there, Cliff Purvis here uh, from uh, Veterans for Scottish Independence 2.0 group. Just uh, continuing along the, the myth-busting session we're doing here, just a little bit about myself. I spent 24 years in the British Army, uh, 14 years with the Queen's Own Highlanders and a further 10 years with the Royal Army Medical Corps. Now, some of the stuff that's getting levelled, particularly on social media, uh, about veterans supporting independence is that in some way we are dishonouring those that have uh, fallen, those that have paid the ultimate price in defence of their country. Remember, we are a democratic process in, in, in motion here in Scotland. Yeah, we are going through the ballot box, we are on the streets, we're trying to convince people that uh, to get Scottish independence all you have to do is vote. So how could supporters of independence be dishonouring the dead who died defending a democratic country. We are exercising a democratic right and in no way are we slighting the memory of those that fallen. My father uh, served from start to finish in World War II and there's absolutely no way that I would be part of any organisation that was belittling what was going on at that era. Uh, so just because you're a veteran and you support independence, you are not in any way uh, forgetting those that have fallen. There's a lot of problems with misconceptions about people being ultra patriotic, ultra nationalist, ultra British nationalists. And that's just not necessarily the case, especially when it comes to people like myself, my partner who are disabled veterans. We've kind of seen it all. I enlisted in the US Navy when I was 19. I wanted to see the world. I wanted to get money for college. I wanted to get trained in a skill. I wanted to do something that I felt mattered. I wanted to stop working in a movie theater and going to university without having a major in mind. And I wanted to just meet more people, meet people from other walks of life. And it really expanded my horizons in every way. It's helped me realize that when they say girls aren't good at math and things like that, that were really drilled into me as a kid, I learned that I loved math. I became a flight engineer. I really enjoyed talking to people from different walks of life. I moved to the Middle East. I, my first duty station was Bahrain and I met people that I never thought, different perspectives that I never even heard of before. One thing I will say though, is that I think most veterans are highly practical when it comes to who they support and why. So you can't make empty promises. You can't, or you can't really bullshit service, former service members when it's something that they know about. There's a lot of things that an independent Scotland can offer veterans of the British forces, such as adequate rehabilitation centers, adequate treatment centers. There's just so many things that they only get south of the border that an independent Scotland can provide. There's also the whole concept of having a Coast Guard, which really, that if you think about it, if somebody is very uncomfortable with the thought of ever 
having the possibility of going into armed conflict, Coast Guard would be a wonderful service that people can join, learn a skill, protect the shores, protect the waters. I did a lot of search and rescue missions that were in partnership with the Coast Guard. And there's just so much that can be done. It really gets to me a little bit when I hear about how military people are automatically seen as not for an independent Scotland. I think that this will take time. I don't think that the, uh, the mood of a nation can shift overnight, but I do think that in an independent Scotland, we can really start to shape a nation that is, you know, friendly outward looking, that, that treasures diplomacy, but also has this pipeline to, to train people in technical skills in a, in a non-traditional way. Um, and I'd really just, I can't wait to see it. This presentation is designed to stimulate discussion about the philosophy of protecting an independent Scotland. So, a map of all the countries belonging to the United Nations. And Scotland will do as others do, because all countries defend themselves. And they all make different choices for themselves. They all freely set their own priorities. And we have to ask ourselves, are any other nations less safe than the UK? Are Norway, Denmark or Ireland less safe, even if they're not in the UK? And no countries follow exactly the same path. And Scotland will be no different from anyone else. But it will be your choice alone, because Scotland's defence policy will be set by those who we elect. And those decisions will be made in Scotland based on Scotland's choices. We'll not be dragged by others into illegal wars. We'll decide when we go to war and no one else. Because we are not subjects. We're citizens and our leaders serve us. So you and you alone will decide how we protect ourselves. And following the rule of law under the control of parliament, not government. And it will be vital that we have a written Scottish constitution, which will be essential for a modern progressive country. And under that constitution, it will make clear the role of all our protective services. We should have a commitment to strengthening all the international institutions. And we should support international law, bodies, treaties and agreements. But we mustn't be blind to the flaws of those bodies or self-interest. For example, of permanent members of the Security Council of the United Nations vetoing criticism of the unacceptable actions of their allies. We must uphold the common good and always remember who guards the guards themselves. So Scotland wants to be one of the good players, remembering that containment is better than confrontation. We can, like Norway, be seen as a facilitator of peace, not an instigator of aggression. And so we should apply our principles with integrity, but we've got to be prepared to be robust. And playing the long game, because patience is a virtue, we must undertake to reinforce our shared values and foster mutual trust and respect with all other countries. And remember, always better the carrot than the stick. The immortal words of the declaration of our growth. But should we be protecting not only our freedom, but also those of others? We're a small country, so joint capability and alliance will be at the heart of our defence. And we should be judged not only on how much we spend, but our willingness to sacrifice for common causes. And that may require us to make sacrifices for the sake of others. But freedom's not only our right, it's a right of all. But we do not accept the principle of the seat at the top table. 
we advocate a round table where all are equal, irrespective of size. Currently, Ireland, Norway, and St. Vincent and the Grenadines are current members of the Security Council, and Estonia, population 1.3 million, has its presidency. We don't want to punch above our weight. We don't want to punch anybody, unless we have to. Brexit shows the value in solidarity, and mutual strength comes from mutual respect. So we should only do as much as we have to, avoiding conflict through diplomacy and negotiation and focusing on stability rather than absolute security, because there can be no absolute security. And one nation's attempt to achieve absolute security represents another nation's absolute insecurity. As we've said before, prevent conflict by deterrence and use sufficient strength to prevent but not to dominate. Defer, deter, not defeat. Apply minimum force and only when we have to. And counter threats, not become one. So, no nation can stand alone, no nation should, and Scotland will not be isolationist. We should share a defence based on our shared principles, alliances are central to our security, and remember, Trident is no ultimate guarantee. There can be none. Nuclear weapons, in fact, encourage proxy wars. They don't protect us from attacks like 9-11, London Underground, um, or Manchester Arena, or indeed cyber attacks on Scotland's essential infrastructure like SEPA and NHS. We'll have to accept the responsibilities of NATO membership and share and accept the consequences of those choices. Our relations should be based on our principles and we apply them equally to friends and enemies. So we'll have to hold ourselves and allies to the highest standards and champion the four essential freedoms of human rights, free press, independent judiciary and rights of ownership. And we must treat all other nations as we ourselves expect to be treated and always behave with dignity and respect for others. This covers all of our society, from our health service, our protection services like Police Scotland, Fire and Rescue, and indeed the Scottish Defence Force. And uh, within the next five years, we're told we'll have a national care service as well as being protected otherwise. And COVID has reinforced the importance of the NHS, but all our protected services will be part of civic society. As we can see right now, as our armed forces assist the NHS in the delivery of vaccines, but they must be bound by the same laws, structures and rules as civic society. So our armed forces will have to abide by strict rules of engagement set by our parliament and government. And unlike the proposals of the last UK government, there should be no immunity from prosecution for carrying out illegal acts by our service people. So those four equal services will be provided for the nation, health, care, emergency, defence and protection. And they'll all be as much part of our daily lives as the NHS. And those who serve us deserve to be served by us. So we have a duty to our service personnel, which is not to put them in harm's way without due cause. They're entitled to public support prior to being committed to action. So we won't just be sending them out and then telling the public to rally around the flag and supporting them, irrespective of the legality of their action. If they come in harm's way in our service, whether it's physical or mental trauma, we'll always support them and ensure that they're fully integrated into society after service. We shouldn't see our ex-service people homeless and begging on the streets, as happens at the moment, and there shouldn't be any need for charities like Health for Heroes. Our civic society has a duty to people 
when they put their lives on the line for us. So those who serve will be served. The three priorities will be the defence of our country, protection of our citizens and the welfare of those who serve. We mustn't play politics with defence and those priorities should be above the interests of politics, shareholders and trade unions. So we mustn't let politicians use the unions and jobs to further their own political interests. We should care more for those who actually bear our arms than those who make them. We'll have to procure our equipment from the very best sources so that we buy the best for the best from the best. Knowing your enemy is absolutely essential and we've got to understand what motivates others. For example, Russia. Invaded by Sweden in the 18th century, France and UK in the 19th century, Germany in the 20th century, and each time they lost millions, if not tens of millions of their citizens. Is it any wonder they're paranoid about the defence and worried about encroachment from the West? Similarly, Iran, whose democratically elected government was overthrown by a plot motivated by the CIA at the request of the UK. Or North Korea, which lost a quarter of its entire population during the Korean War. And is it one, any wonder that they seek what they regard as the ultimate deterrent to stop it potentially happening again? So don't judge other countries by our own fears and try to understand their imperatives. Focus on containment, not conflict, and communicate our own motives effectively. We didn't do that in 1981 and 1982 and thereby encouraged the invasion of the Falklands by Argentina. And finally, don't underestimate the resolve of others. Afghanistan has resisted invasion by Britain in the 19th century and Russia in the 20th and USA in the 21st. Vietnam resisted France, USA and China. So never underestimate the resolve of even a very small and weakly defended country. So don't prejudge, take time to understand others. So in conclusion, this is a presentation, is a basis for discussion, but we feel we'll have to forge our own identity, nurture our own values and apply them consistently when we deal with others. We should be a facilitator of peace and freedom, but prepared to defend it if needed. So what is the balance between protecting Scotland and freedom for all? So that concludes my presentation. This has been a team effort. A number of people have contributed to this presentation. So thanks very much for your attention. Hello, I'm Isabel Lindsay, and I have been campaigning on peace and disarmament issues since 1960. I'm currently uh, a vice chair of Scottish CND, but the paper I'm going to discuss is one that has been prepared uh, as part of the Transitions to Independence series of policy papers on behalf of the Scottish Independence Convention. And the full paper is available on their website, together with a range of other transition papers. What we hope to do is to say we have to make preparations well in advance for that transition to independence. But that also involves looking, especially in an area like defence foreign policy, it involves looking at what our future role should be, how we put in place, how we transition to the means to achieve those positive objectives. For far too many centuries, Scottish armed forces have been used for doing bad things on behalf of the British state. What we want to do is to try and ensure 
that in the future with an independent Scotland, they are doing good things from a humanitarian perspective for all of us. And I think when we consider language, we should be using the language of Scottish security rather than just talking about uh, Scottish defence policy and putting our plans uh, into the context of a, a wider Scottish security context. And we are suggesting that we should be establishing something we could start with now, uh, a secure Scotland commission to try to assess the whole context of risk and how we plan for it, how we protect. And it's into that context that uh, Scottish defence forces would fit. So it would be in that broader context. And this would give us the opportunity for really looking at what are the existential risks that we might face with Scotland? How best do we plan for it and approach? Uh, because we have certainly been in a situation as you know we have seen currently, where uh, we spent billions on uh, aircraft carriers, uh, one of which is going out to the South China Seas just now, but we didn't prepare for a health pandemic, although we knew that was a possibility on the horizon. Uh, so we want to assess the context of risk and coming down the line, uh, we have climate change and all the implications there. We have our enormous over-dependence building up on cyber security. So it's both cyber failure, cyber attack we may have to deal with, uh, we have, uh, of course, uh, great um, marine resources, which are going to, in terms of renewable energy, increase even as oil diminishes. And we have coastal security uh, to consider. And uh, we have, of course, one of our great risk factors we have in Scotland uh, currently around 180 nuclear bombs in the central belt. And this is going to go up to, 106, to 260 uh, in the near future. That's just been announced. This is an enormous risk and we have all of the delivery systems. So how do we begin to approach these? And uh, on the nuclear question, uh, I think it is absolutely essential and uh, the SNP, the Greens, many others, are now supportive of the new Treaty on the Prohibition of Nuclear Weapons, the UN Treaty. And this would ensure, as independent Scotland ratifies it, that we would be acting to remove these nuclear weapons within an international context with UN support. Uh, and I believe that is something that has to be done, a clear timetable sorted out before we make a decision on NATO membership. Hello, my name is Anthony Salamone. I'm the Managing Director of European Merchants, a political analysis firm based in Edinburgh, which I founded in 2019. I'm a political scientist. My areas of expertise focus on international relations, EU politics and institutions, and Scottish-UK politics. My work also covers US politics, European small states, and modern diplomatic strategy. As part of my work, I lead the Scottish State Builder Project, European Merchants' pioneering initiative to bring detailed expert analysis to major questions on independence. My most recent report, Scotland's Global Blueprint, sets out the path to build the institutions for a successful values-based foreign policy under independence. 
Today, from my perspective as a political scientist, I'm going to talk about how I would think about defining Scotland's defence and security strategy as an independent state. First, on the principles for Scottish defence and security. I think it's important to be upfront that independence would be a transformational process for Scotland, requiring significant change across government and society. We should be honest that defence in particular is an area in which the current Scottish government has almost no role. Of course, we have active military personnel in Scotland, and we have veterans in Scotland, including participants at this conference. We also have current and retired civil servants with expertise in defence, security and intelligence. However, in terms of the institutions of Scotland, which is the focus of the State Builder Project, we must recognise that the new government of Scotland, as it would be, would have to create the defence and security institutions of the state largely from scratch. By contrast, the Scottish government does have expertise in some respects in security, through policing and justice. While perhaps daunting, creating these new institutions presents a once-in-a-lifetime opportunity to build a Scottish state which reflects Scotland's values, interests and priorities. Ensuring the safety and security and all their various facets of the public is often taken as the first priority of the state, and Scotland would be responsible for these in its own right. I would like to see Scotland, as a European state and a European small state, adopt a values-based and holistic approach to defence and security, just as it would on its foreign policy. These days, we talk about new challenges and corresponding methods to protect the state, from hybrid threats to non-traditional defence and security challenges, biosecurity, as we're all experiencing right now with the pandemic, to cybersecurity, to climate security. These are essential areas which require appropriate investment by the Scottish state. Nevertheless, one can also object to the increasing securitization of public affairs, such as we have seen with respect to migration here in Europe and elsewhere. I share that concern, where securitization promotes or leads to hostile policies, defensiveness, and misguided interpretations of the national interest. I am sure that we can all agree that Scotland should not entertain such a course. At the same time, we must recognize the real European and global defense and security environment which Scotland faces right now and would face as an independent state. Worryingly, I have often detected a latent premise within our independence debate, the idea that with the right amount of bonhomie, we could be great friends with every state in the world. We, in this audience, know that is not the case. As a state, Scotland would face real defense and security challenges from state actors, not just the non-state actors whom we increasingly speak of these days. Regardless of the fact that Scotland would start with a positive or benign international reputation, if only for the fact that we have not been a state for so long, and therefore not been judged as one in respect of global affairs. That reality connects to the definition of Scotland's defence and security strategy. If, as I imagine it would be the case, the core priorities of the defence, security and intelligence institutions of the state are to preserve Scotland as a free democratic state and to protect the Scottish way of life, that demands consideration of the full challenges that we would face. In line with the constitution and its defining principles, such as civilian control of the military, we would develop the means to protect our democracy and our state. That would include the integrity of our elections and our democratic process, the maintenance of a free and independent media while also combating misinformation and disinformation, and maintaining the functionality of our infrastructure, including energy, water, and other public utilities. More broadly, fulfilling those core priorities also depends on the European and global systems which exist, which sustain us in so many respects, and which are changing. The success or failure of multilateralism, the future of the rules-based global system, and the evolution of the United Nations would all matter to our defense and security as much as to our foreign policy. Underpinning all of these developments is the ongoing competition between starkly different political value systems, which will shape the kind of world that we inhabit. On these questions, diplomacy would be at the center of our EU and international action. I would envisage and hope that the Department of Defense and the Department of European and External Relations as I would call Scotland's Ministry of Foreign Affairs, 
would work very closely together in a spirit of genuine partnership. That cooperation would be imperative. We are too small to have American-style turf wars. That leads me to a recurring theme in our independence debate, neutrality. In today's world, neutrality is an outmoded and ineffective concept. Scotland is not neutral now. It would make no sense to become neutral in the 2020s. As I have outlined, we would face challenges and threats across a range of areas, from traditional defense to the future of the UN and international law. We should not seek to declare ourselves neutral on any of these areas. For us, that would, I think, be an abdication of responsibility at a crucial time in world history. Fundamentally, neutrality would not protect us from anything and only diminish our role in the world. So that takes us to perhaps the most notable and consequential defense and security question that Scotland would face as a state, our relationship with NATO. It is abundantly clear that NATO is a contentious subject within the independence movement. And even many of those who ostensibly support Scottish membership of NATO often whisper that view at best. Nevertheless, I suspect that a clear majority of the Scottish public as a whole, beyond the independence movement, would support NATO membership. I approach the question of NATO membership in a threefold way. First, Scotland's defence and security requirements. In our immediate neighbourhood and on wider regional and global security issues, the Alliance, which includes most EU member states, would support Scottish defence and security. Second, the defence and security of Scotland's allies, principally in the first instance, the other EU member states. NATO is foundational to the Baltic states of Estonia, Latvia, Lithuania, of Poland and of others. Scotland being part of NATO would support them in their security and defence. Third, Scotland's role in the EU and the world beyond our direct defence and security. Cooperating through NATO with EU and non-EU allies would enhance Scotland's impact in the world. On all three measures, it's clear to me that an independent Scotland should join NATO. Being part of NATO would not conflict with Scotland's aspirations to contribute to global peacebuilding, whether through UN peacekeeping or other peace-related roles, as Norway, Canada, and other NATO members evidently demonstrate. I very much support the principle of Scotland being a nuclear weapons-free state, and I find that completely achievable while also being part of NATO. At the same time, the Treaty on the Prohibition of Nuclear Weapons, the TPNW, has also featured in our debate. The treaty has laudable aspirations, which I imagine we can all support. However, honestly, given that all NATO members are outside the TPNW, it seems clear to me, at present at least, that NATO membership and the TPNW are incompatible. Our public debate currently does not account for this reality, and it needs to. If Scotland becomes independent, this will certainly not be the only question for which all the options available present some form of difficulty, but its choice is still required. In building the Scottish state, I think it would be vital to ensure that its political institutions operate with a genuine regard to the evolving views of the public. As I have proposed in Scotland's Global Blueprint, any application for Scotland to join international organisations should require approval from the Parliament of Scotland. Accordingly, the Parliament would have to approve NATO membership for it to happen. Should differences of opinion make it warranted, it would also be possible to hold a NATO membership referendum to determine whether Scotland joined NATO. Deciding Scotland's approach on NATO should happen during the transition to independence. And as part of that transition, provided we agreed on NATO membership, it would be important to uh, determine interim arrangements with NATO and the UK on the Scotland-NATO relationship at the point of independence, to cover from that point until Scotland's eventual accession to NATO. I hope and expect that Scotland, as an independent state, would seek to join the European Union. Defence and security cooperation are integral aspects of being part of the EU. As I set out in Scotland's EU blueprint, Scotland's EU accession process could reasonably take four to five years, from point of application to point of accession. It would be beneficial for Scotland's pre-accession relationship with the European Union, which I have recommended to be an EU-only association agreement, at least initially, to include appropriate defence and security cooperation, in addition to wider foreign policy cooperation. After accession, Scotland would fully participate in EU policies on defence and security. This work will take a multitude of forms. 
Scotland will be part of the EU's Common Security and Defence Policy, the CSDP. Officials and personnel would participate in council institutions, including the Political and Security Committee and the EU Military Committee. On wider internal security, Scotland would be part of various EU agencies and initiatives, including Europol, Eurojust, and, I hope, the Schengen Information System. Incidentally, our discussion here reinforces the importance of Scotland being part of the non-border aspects of the Schengen acquis, even if we are not part of the Schengen area to maintain the common travel area with the UK, Ireland, and the other participants. Defence is an area where the EU is looking to do more, along with foreign policy. These developments are connected with the defining debates in Brussels and EU capitals on the concept of European strategic autonomy, including what it means in practice, and its place in the general future direction of the European Union. As a new member state, Scotland would be an integral participant in these debates. As I have noted in some of my work, we are currently disadvantaged because Scottish politics is largely, if not wholly, disconnected from these crucial European debates. What would Scotland's position be on European strategic autonomy, on the development of wider European defence? What would Scotland's contributions be to European security? These are foundational questions related not just to Scotland's place in the EU, but our defence and security strategy. And here again, answers would be needed. Finally, it's important to consider Scotland's bilateral relationship with the United Kingdom on defence and security, how these two, two states would cooperate together. Conceptualising the transition to independence requires significant work, and the next report in the State Builder Project will cover the pathway to independence after an independence referendum. In my strong view, Scotland should aspire for positive and constructive bilateral relations with the UK on defence and security, as on other areas. Scotland should approach the relationship that way, regardless of the approach which the UK would take. While the mechanics of Scotland's separation and independence are still to be established, future defence and security cooperation could be part of the principal treaty, or it could be established through a freestanding agreement. Either way, this cooperation would surely function through the broader institutions that would be created to facilitate the new bilateral relationship. Naturally, these institutions and that cooperation would evolve in the decades after independence. The exact shape of that cooperation would be determined by the circumstances at the time. If we envisage a scenario in which Scotland has become independent, Scotland after a period is part of NATO and the UK is part of NATO, the two states are part of the common travel area along with Ireland, and both states have committed to working together to manage their shared island, we can see opportunities and indeed necessities for good bilateral cooperation on defence and security and on other issues. With Scotland as an EU member, such cooperation would of course be shaped by and need to accord with the relationship between the EU and the UK. Scotland and the UK would have markedly, markedly different EU and foreign policies. That would be a principal reason why Scotland was becoming independent. Cooperation should still be possible, and Scotland should endeavour to foster it. The emphasis should be on working through institutions, through NATO, the common travel area, trilateral institutions with Ireland, and bilateral institutions directly between Scotland and the UK. Scotland's defence and security under independence are complex and vital issues. They require purposeful and detailed consideration. So much more remains to be discussed, areas which I haven't addressed today, including Scotland's contributions to UN peacekeeping operations and our other security and democracy efforts, such as through the OSCE, the Organization for Security and Cooperation in Europe. We hear discussions beyond the assumption that NATO membership is inevitable after independence. And neutral countries reject belligerence and certainly nuclear weapons, but have strong active defence forces. Well, as I said in my opening remarks, I don't think that the idea of Scotland joining NATO is inevitable. I think it's pretty clear that we have an ongoing debate on this that will need to be resolved in one way or the other. Uh, and I hope they will have that debate. I hope that the, in due course the parliament would be involved and indeed there may even need to be a referendum. So I wouldn't take that for granted. On the question of neutrality, as I said in my remarks as well, I don't think neutrality works for Scotland or makes sense for most countries these days, but it's quite general to say neutral countries do X or Y. 
there are many different kinds of you know approaches take there's, there's more to debate there but no i don't take nato for granted i don't think anyone who proposes scotland should be part of nato should just assume it would happen Yes, I, I very much agree that we should be looking much more at, as I said, the Irish model. And when we talk about neutral countries, we're not talking about countries that are going to be morally neutral, far from it. We're talking about countries who are not going to be part of existing military alliances. And of course, NATO is completely dominated by the interests of the US. And uh, there are big issues uh, around that. Uh, if we look at the contribution Ireland has made over decades to UN peacekeeping and the respect that it has gained, then I think, and of course it's not just peacekeeping, it's um, also when we have international tragedies uh, and contributions there, practical contributions there, that this is where we could make a positive contribution, just as in our anti-nuclear position, we can make a very positive international contribution. But the one thing which I think is crucial is that irrespective of the decision Scotland ultimately makes about uh, uh, NATO membership, I think the situation of UK nuclear weapons in Scotland has got to be solved first. There has got to be a clear timetable there. We have got to ratify uh, the uh, Treaty for the pro on the Prohibition of Nuclear Weapons. And when that's out of the way, then I think a decision can be made. If that's not out of the way, it will be subject to enormous pressure and blackmail in any application for NATO membership. Uh, yes, well, obviously we'd have to apply as, uh, although an ancient, very ancient nation, a new state. Uh, and there are, like anything, pros and cons. But fundamentally, uh, NATO has been a very attractive option for um, the vast majority of the new states that have been created in Europe since the collapse of the Soviet Union. And you have to ask why they would want to join NATO and why the existing members of NATO want to have them in. Um, neutrality is, of course, an option. Uh, really, the only ones I can think of in Europe are um, Ireland, Switzerland and Sweden. And they've been... the last two have been neutral for centuries and uh, for reasons that clearly suit the will of their people. I think probably it would be in our benefit to be a NATO member and I think, uh, as I said in my myth-busting piece, uh, NATO would absolutely want us in. They wouldn't be uh, keeping us out because we are too wee and too small and too stupid. But it's a decision for the Scottish people to make. It's a decision that we should uh, probably overall put uh, have a national debate on and like a number of other things membership of the eu or membership of uh, efta and uh, the monarchy and all the other big questions we should have a big debate first and then put it to the people thank you colin that leads really nicely into that and um, question around the constitution uh, which was brought up by a few people saying what would you know, what would and um, what would we cover within a constitution um, in terms of Scottish defence and protection? So, kind of two questions. Firstly, are you in favour of a written constitution, and then what type of thing would be included with regards to defence and protection? Okay, so uh, yes, I'm in favour of a written constitution. I just think that's I'll just leave it at that. But in, in the in respect of defence and security and protection, how much of that should be in the Scottish constitution? I don't think it should be. In there much at all. I mean, of course, it would be referenced and sort of you know linked to sort of the foundational aims of the state. But the purpose of the constitution is to create a broad framework uh, which is sufficiently 
adaptable and vague and malleable to, uh, you know, suit the, the state as it would evolve. Um, so I would want to see a constitution which is shorter, uh, which is focused predominantly on institutions and on the checks and balances within those institutions. So, you know, in, in that context of a preamble or so, I'm sure it's the mention of security as one of the aspirations of the state, but I wouldn't want to see anything too specific on that. Yes, I think there are two crucial areas that should be in a Scottish constitution, and I think this is very, very fundamental. One relates to weapons of indiscriminate mass destruction. Now, that includes chemical, biological, nuclear. Uh, and I think there should be a prohibition in the Scottish contribution uh, constitution. Uh, we have something close to this in Austria and New Zealand, uh, you know, in, in legal format. I think we should have that in the Scottish constitution. But the other should be what kind of permission should be required for Scotland to go to war or to engage in warfare. And uh, there, I think there should be a lock, some have suggested a triple lock uh, or whatever uh, number of qualifications, but in other words, that there should have to be a clear majority vote of the Scottish Parliament before uh, Scottish troops are sent into war. Fantastic, thank you. Um, and, and Colin, your view of the constitution and the, and the coverage for defence and security? Yes, absolutely. We must have a written constitution. The rights of the citizens of Scotland must be clearly enshrined and understood and limits on the power of the executive of the country must be clearly defined as well. I agree with this bill that uh, it should not be directly within the power of the executive to decide whether to commit our forces to any kind of uh, warfare that should be authorised by Parliament and it should not be allowed to be conducted unilaterally as it is within the UK at the moment. You know, Scotland, no matter what we spend on defence, would still be a small country spending a relatively small amount. So how do we decide our uh, priorities? We have um, Hillary who said our top priority is maritime, then cyber, and you know we've had another few comments. So any ideas around this kind of prioritisation as an independent country? What's your number one priority? And then how do you start to prioritise? Isabel, could I ask you to answer that one first? Yes. Well, this is why I think our starting point, and, and to be fair, not that they should really act on it, but the UK government in its priority, in, in its um, security reviews, both uh, its uh, one at the end of last year and five years ago, uh, has actually taken a position of saying, what are the security risks? And of course, its list of security risks uh, quite significantly don't involve traditional military action or traditional military threat. And Scotland has to do this. And this is why I'm suggesting that, uh, first of all, we put the emphasis in our language on Scottish security and assessing what the risks are, the existential risks, and that we do establish, which we could do now, uh, a Secure Scotland Commission to try to do perhaps reports every two years on where those risks are. And uh, I do think there's no doubt at all our vulnerability on cyber issues. Now, these might not be cyber attacks. They may be commercial, even if they were cyber attacks, rather than from uh, uh, other states. But uh, they may just be failures, but we're very vulnerable. But of course, uh, climate change brings with it all kinds of issues mm. uh, which could provide uh, uh, serious uh, threat. And of course, uh, we have a situation, we'll be discussing this later, we have a situation in which Scotland 
uh, is host currently to around 180 nuclear bombs and the uh, British government has said it's going to go up uh, uh, to 260. So uh, these are big risks and we have to prioritise these. But I don't think invasion by other countries, uh, the UK government doesn't see this uh, as a major threat. We're not a country with a, a, a boundary which is under question or which is a boundary one has to assume that an independent Scotland mm. will not be regarding England as a hostile power. Yeah, I think this is something that will require a lot of discussion, which Isabel and Colin have mentioned. Uh, from me, from my perspective as a foreign policy person, you know, I, I would take a, 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 a comparably broad definition of, sort of the security and defence of Scotland, and that's about ensuring that Scotland can remain we are and will be, which is a democracy with the kinds of rights and freedoms that we want, and consider the things that are going on in the world which would challenge those. And of course, those are uh, you know things that I mentioned in my opening remarks of the future of multilateralism of the United Nations, of whether or not they continue in a form that uh, you know as, as they were designed to be, uh, what happens with the direction of international law and the competition between the United States and China and so on, and where Scotland fits in and all that, Isabel mentioned. Cybersecurity; that, those are issues and threats that we face already. If we look at what happened to SIPA several months ago, so you know, I, I don't have a direct answer on what the number one priority we should be focusing on, but I think it's something that we need to be giving a lot more discussion to, not just us, but also Scottish politics. And of course, Scottish politics does not do that. Um, yes, so it's, well, I'd like to reinforce on cybersecurity. In addition, I was going to mention SIPA, but also the our Scottish NHS was uh, um, targeted by cyber criminals. Uh, in recent years. And don't forget, in Scotland, we have two of the leading world universities in terms of cybersecurity training in Aberty and Edinburgh. They produce graduates that get snapped up by places like GCHQ straight away. So we have got, um, I wouldn't say self-sufficiency, but we do have centres of excellence in that. Uh, we've got to concentrate on our health risks. The pandemic has just shown how immensely damaging that can be. And we've got to prepare ourselves for that. But on the straight defence side, we've got an enormous uh, maritime exclusive economic zone uh, compared with our geographical area. Uh, I mean, Norway has a bigger one because of its huge land, uh, north-south land cover. And we would need to cover that both from a naval and an air force point of view, uh, given our geopolitical situation. So, um, but it's all down for cross-party and civic society agreement on prioritizing what those risks are, what the actual order of sequence in that those priorities are, and how we're going to meet them from our budget. Great. Well, well I would summarize there a couple of things I think which have been consistent. I think the first thing that I would say is that we need to start thinking about these things now. And this is one of the reasons that we've, we, we've decided to run this conference, is that we really need to think that there's a lot of things that the, that the current Scottish administration and Scottish society as a whole really need to start talking about. And then the second point is this involvement of the nation and making these decisions with as much information, as much involvement as possible. Is that a fair reflection on the, on the conversation so far? Great. Um, yeah. uh, we've, got, we've got a good question here, um, which is how seriously do we take the RUK uh, once we're independent? And against a newly independent Scotland. Quite confident or as confident that we can be that the relationship between Scotland and the UK should be a constructive one and a positive one uh, on defence and security and everything else. Now, I mean, obviously, the we, we can never, we'll never be able to control politics or decisions in the UK. So I mean, the rest of the UK in this. 
uh, we can only control what we would be doing. Um, but the, the number one way to try to ensure that our bilateral relationship uh, continue to be constructive was to have was to have is to work through institutions. Uh, so that could be bilateral institutions that could be established as part of the separation and independence process. That could be through working together in NATO or in the United Nations, uh, or on things that are practical. Uh, for instance, in the management of the common travel area. So through institutions, you can bind the parties together and try to, if you know, show that any disputes are managed through those institutions. And I think that that would always be. Uh, the kind of focus that I would suggest. Brilliant. That's an answer I can expect from a political scientist for absolute sure. Um, okay, Colin, could you address that one next? Uh, yes, well, we would expect to have excellent relations with uh, the our current partners in the UK uh, once we become independent. Uh, we're obviously going to have to build up our own capability in um, areas such as intelligence gathering and cybersecurity. But it's Interesting to note, for instance, that um, General Douglas Lute, when he was talking to the House of Commons Defence Select Committee about the relationship between the US and the UK since President Biden's come in, was that the number one importance the US placed on the UK's uh, capabilities was intelligence sharing in the Five Eyes. And the Five Eyes, of course, comprise US, UK, Canada, Australia and New Zealand. New Zealand's a country with the same size of uh, population as Scotland has. So if New Zealand can be a valued partner in intelligence gathering and uh, cyber security, Scotland clearly can as well. And England and our UK would have a very strong vested interest in making sure what it considered its backdoor, i.e. Scotland, was an integral part in the thinking. So I think we will be welcomed and we will establish extremely good relations with our friends and cousins south of the board. Uh, I mean, I think the first thing I would say is that all states are up to things that are questionably ethical when it comes to intelligence gathering, hacking, etc. It is only a few weeks ago when the Swedish government had to make a formal complaint and, and request for apology from Denmark because it was discovered that Denmark Denmark's intelligence agency had been working with the US in effect to hack uh, other European leaders, including Angela Merkel and including Swedish politicians. So they had been up to that, undermining others in this way. Uh, so we've got to be aware of the fact that intelligence agencies have got to be kept under control um, and that all governments are doing often rather questionable things. But yes, uh, we need our own Scottish intelligence agency because we have our own needs, which are certainly not the same as the needs of, say, the US or others. We are not really going to be desperately involved in uh, you know, trying to hack into what the Chinese or the Indians or uh, the Iranians you know, are saying and doing. But uh, we do actually probably need to up our game in terms of organised crime and all kinds of things like this. But we can certainly build uh, a, a joint uh, civil and military intelligence unit on the basis of our existing Police Scotland uh, Intelligence Centre, which is in the uh, Police Crime Campus. So this is something we can build on. We've got the basis there. In terms of relationships, uh, Obviously, the British state, particularly, not, not exclusively, but particularly the, uh, if it's a Conservative government, uh, they are going to be desperate to hold on to Faslane and to hold on to Trident. Not because it has a military purpose, 
not because it has a defence purpose, but because it has an enormous international prestige purpose and they think it's crucial in keeping their permanent uh, place in the UN Security Council. So they're going to be desperate to do this, which is why when you're under that situation, you have got to have very, very clearly defined strategy and red lines. And you've got to have it there. Now, we're greatly helped now that we've got uh, the new TPNW treaty because that puts Scotland, when we ratify it, into an international legal context. It's a UN treaty. It has now 52, 53 other states involved. Um, so that makes things easier for Scotland. But the key here is we have to have a timetable because what the UK will do uh, is not say, oh no, you cannot, you cannot uh, 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 insist that we remove Trident. What they will do is say, well, we need 10 years, we need 15 years. Uh, we can put up with five years on the assumption that after five years, they'll get another five years, which is so important that we deal with this right away with a timetable. Now, we've done the work um, in terms of disarming Trident, uh, SCND, uh, uh, techniques at the time during the referendum. A detailed report on how it can be done practically. And the one thing that can be done comparatively quickly, it requires the UK government uh, to uh, uh, create a, a storage centre for nuclear bombs, but then they do uh, have um, the factory uh, uh, which produces the warheads. Uh, but the actual warheads can be got rid of in a phased way within a couple of years. We've just had a poll open and just to assure people we're not saying this is scientific in any way it's to get the opinions of our attendees and um, but we said after independence trident and we've got no people who've said should stay and I think that would be a little bit more reflective but interestingly we've got um, uh, 60% who said it should go as soon as possible within two years and 30% um, who said it should go within five years and then around 12, 12 and a half percent who said hold on a minute this is maybe one of our aces in terms of bargaining with the United, uh, with, with the rest of the United Kingdom. I would like just very quickly to cover, because we've had quite a lot of comments from the attendees around uh, the naval defence of Scotland stroke Coast Guard, because that's obviously a huge issue considering the size of, of our coastline. And um, Colin, as someone who's flown over most of our coastline for a good chunk of your years, um, would you like to give us um, your thoughts on that, first of all? Yes, we've got a very extensive uh, exclusive economic zone uh, obviously, our territorial waters are only 12 miles from uh, our coastline, uh, but the EEZ is out to 100 miles and covers well into the Atlantic. That brings with it a lot of international responsibilities as well. Um, but we need to protect our sovereignty and our territorial integrity. We need to protect our economic assets, which are effectively at present the... Uh, oil, gas and mineral resources, the fishing rights, and of course, uh, more and more, the renewable energy producing ability, such as offshore wind, tidal uh, stream power generation, which is in fact, Scotland has got a world lead in right now. Um, and so all of those things need to be monitored, patrolled. You can monitor, first of all, from the air, uh, you can either go for hugely expensive maritime patrol aircraft or you could uh, downgrade to um, 
unmanned airborne vehicles to do your surveillance, as well as satellites, which of course Scotland is uh, a European leader in as well. You'll obviously need direct intervention with maritime vessels, and that can be done on a sort of tiered and structured basis because we'll have to have uh, proper fighting warships, which uh, i.e. A, a blue water navy, not uh, commensurate with our responsibilities and how parts we want to play in multilateral alliances. We should have Coast Guard type interventions, which would cover uh, border security, anti-drug running, anti-illegal immigration, etc. It could also uh, jointly cover the customs and excise side of life to stop um, uh, illegal importation of um, stuff on which duty has to be paid. Uh, we need to have our fishery protection side done. At present, it's done by Marine Scotland uh, with three vessels. In fact, uh, one of them was anchored overnight just outside my house in the bay, uh, the smallest of the three. Um, and we need to have policing of our inshore waters. So we will need probably uh, roughly a fleet of 30 to 40 government vessels of uh, from large ocean going right down to small inshore craft to cover all those responsibilities. And there are a number of off-the-shelf options. Uh, ideally, in due course, we'd like them all built in Scotland, but I don't think we have currently the capability, the way things are set up. Uh, would we, should we consider joining the Nordic Defence Cooperation? Um, I haven't come across that before. Other members are Iceland, Norway, Denmark, Finland and Sweden, and Scotland would be uh, become the final link in a defensive Nordefco chain. Um, I think that Scotland should have a closer relationship with the Nordic Council but um, and a Nordic cooperation which is beyond the Council, but uh, I think that, what, that whenever that, that step should be, it should be progressive. You know, we, we, are, we have close links with the Nordic countries, but we are not one. Uh, and obviously they have um, a, a much, much deeper history of cooperating together on all different kinds of multilateral levels. So perhaps, but um, I, I wouldn't consider that to be the first place I'd go. Um, I, I can, since I'm speaking, just come back to one thing you're mentioning before about the kind of discussion and debate we're having. And I think it's worthwhile and great to note that we're having, we have a huge, we have a, certainly differences of views in this particular panel. If you take what Colin said earlier, that Scotland, you know, would be embraced to the five eyes as the sixth eye. And Isabel saying that it's important to ratify the TPNW, which I think is incompatible with being part of NATO. But, you know, we definitely have d clearly different views on what kind of defense and security Scotland should have. I think that's very healthy. But obviously, you know, the rest of the world is paying attention to that uh, and they will want to see answers from us that we can agree on. So I think it, it would be useful over time to try and move in that direction. And Isabel, I'm going to ask you a question again on Trident, but I'm going to kind of preface it in this idea of how difficult it is to actually disentangle Scottish defence and armed services from where we are in the UK. I mean, how realistic is it that Scotland could take a separate path from the United Kingdom uh, fairly quickly considering how much there is to disentangle. I think there are two transition levels here. One is Scotland deciding what kind of role it wants to play internationally in terms of security issues, etc. So that's the kind of big picture, the prioritisation. But the other is about the personal, about areas, uh, not just in this, but particularly, the, the, you know, this is one um, there are some, uh, there are others where there is cross-border employment and that is where we have to give the confidence and security 
to individuals in terms of the change in their situation. And uh, it, it may be a change that's only interim, uh, before new developments take place, but we have to give people that confidence and that guarantee. And we can do it because we've had that experience when you have uh, other things happening within Scotland, when you have had local government reform, and I know this is a rather different level, but the, the same kind of thing when we've been able to say, look, things are changing in relation to your job, but we're guaranteeing you employment, we're guaranteeing you that salary, and we're guaranteeing you a status of some sort. We have to offer people that, just as we have to offer them and to promote to them the fact that there are lots of things which will be better for them in Scotland. Being a smaller country, and uh, and certainly one uh, hopes not engaging in the expeditionary warfare kind of thing that uh, has so engaged the UK, that it will be easier for uh, people to have in the armed forces to have normal homes, to be based in communities, not in barracks, mm. uh, and uh, to, to to sustain something that is closer to ordinary life. Before we finish up, what about that idea of the timeline to properly disentangle? You said that I think that's yes. kind of the first phase there of saying to people yeah. that things will be better or you're guaranteed things that yeah. you like. Any thoughts on that kind of duration for that full disentanglement? I think this is one of the things that one has to work out, but you have to give people uh, the, the, the guarantee that basic guarantee that if they have any kind of Scottish background, very, very broadly defined uh, in the armed forces just now, and they wish to transfer, then we will guarantee them employment and employment rights. Uh, so uh, I think that is crucially important for people. Now, we will be in an interim position where we do end up, I mean, we haven't engaged in discussions about equipment <laughs> and what we want to get and what we don't want to get and, you know, how we go about this um, and, you know, some work's been done in this. Um, but when it comes to people and personnel, we have to give them that assurance. We may end up uh, not with quite the right balance to begin with of personnel, but th there's quite a high turnover. Uh, that will emerge through time. We've got to set what are our targets, what do we aim for, and then how do we get there by giving individuals reassurance. Uh, Anthony, as a political scientist, have you got any kind of idea in your head when you think we'd be able to you know, properly say that we were we were taking an, uh, an independent military or strategic course from the rest of the, uh, the, rest of the United Kingdom? Well, I suppose that links through to how long the transition to independence would be and what would be happening during that transition. I'm currently working on that, but I think it's reasonable to assume that the transition could take about two to three years. So I suppose the question is, how much could be accomplished during that period and how much would the UK be willing to work with us to start to achieve some of the things that we would want during that? So it's challenging to say, but I would really want us to be in a position where as obviously there would be transitions and so on. And not, by the way, that all needs to be compatible with joining the European Union, those transitions. But I would want us to be in a position where as much as was, was possible, considering the circumstance that we were ready to, to start doing a lot of things at the point of independence. But obviously, we won't be able to do all of it. So you know, I, I think it, a lot will come down to how organized the Scottish government is to implement the transition. We've got a small example of precedent. I used to uh, fly search and rescue for a while when I was in the Navy. Search and rescue was privatized four or five years ago. And there was a case where all the Navy and Air Force search and rescue pilots and backseat crew were basically offered places 
of employment in the civilianized industry. They had to retrain on new helicopters to fulfill that role and the transition happened and it was over about a three year period. So on a small scale, there is precedent, it can be done. You just have to have a vision and a will. Well, I'm very glad we finished on such a high positive note. Thank you for the three of you for, for taking part. Now we're going to look at the, the most important aspect within our defence security protection, the nuclear weapons um, stroke trident. We've got a fantastic panel. Hi there, my name's Bob Fotheringham. I'm a socialist and I'm here on behalf of Now Scotland. My view on nuclear weapons is that they are destructive and indiscriminate uh, and I oppose them on that basis. Uh, they are costly, the money may be better spent, socially useful projects and in terms of Scotland it's undemocratic. Uh, the major political representatives in Scotland uh, or in the Scottish Parliament oppose nuclear weapons and so they're citing and Fazlaid and the Clyde is something that I believe is opposed by the majority of people in Scotland and they should be removed. This would be Scotland, an independent Scotland's opportunity to make a really substantial contribution internationally if we remove these weapons. And of course, in so doing so, we would, of course, make it very difficult for the UK to continue as a nuclear power. So it's a wonderful opportunity for Scotland to do something that is positive and constructive. There are really only two uh, things on the horizon that could present a truly existential risk to the survival of human civilization. One is nuclear weapons, the other is climate change. Scotland needs to prioritise both of these. I'm convener of SNP CND, which is a, it's a, a group within Scottish CND where members of uh, the SNP can, can come together and network and take things forward. Uh, our recent focus has been on trident removal, surprise, surprise. In the SNP's 2019 conference on motion on a roadmap of trident removal was passed unanimously. Our next step is to take forward a motion on a timescale for trident removal. Uh, that will be underpinned by the frameworks for nuclear weapon removal laid out in the new uh, Treaty on the Removal of Nuclear Weapons, the TPNW, which became international law in January of this year one of the most exciting developments in, in, in the world in relation to the anti-nuclear movement and, and in the view probably of everybody here. Every SNP parliamentarian, both in Holyrood and Westminster, has signed up to the ICANN TPNW parliamentary pledge, and, and that's in both Westminster and in Holyrood. All of the Greens, both in Westminster and Holyrood, have done the same, and as far as I'm aware, uh, some, some Labour MSPs have done so, and I think some, possibly some Labour MPs down in Westminster may have, may have done so as well. So our focus from an SNPC and point of view is to take forward and try and expand on existing SNP policy, which is already a roadmap and tried and was passed unanimously, as I said. And in the next opportunity, we intend to take forward something on timescales. Bill, picking up from the TNPW, um, what is the kind of likely timescale of removal? Correct me if I'm wrong, but I think you said that was kind of covered in that uh, in that agreement. It's not. The timescale is still to be within the TPNW. And Janet actually uh, is, is she's the, the Scottish representative in uh, uh, ICANN, and we'll be able to say a bit more about that. But it's, uh, as of this moment in time, a timescale in terms of TPNW uh, is still to be fleshed out. We had 
before the TPNW became law, we were looking at a time scale of between three and five years. And that sort of fits within the TPNW rubric, but maybe we can get into some more detail on that. On relation to the TPNW and its workings, as I say, the Scottish Government, when it became independent, it would become a signatory, it would ratify the TPNW. 54 countries currently have ratified it, and that's growing. Janet remind us 160 or have actually put the process in motion. But then we would have the resources of the United Nations institutions that would become involved in helping Scotland and the remaining of the UK remove a trident from Scotland, Atomic Energy Agency. That would be one of the institutions that would be involved. There would be help from other institutions. And I would almost say it looks like we've got a bit of a roadmap towards that as well with the treaty. The most significant thing about getting rid of the, the weapons is that that would not be determined if an independent Scotland accedes to the treaty. It, it would mean that the timescale would be determined by the first meeting of state parties, which is going to happen in January. Uh, that's the first meeting of the countries that have fully ratified the treaty. And there are discussions going on at the present time about what would be required for removal. And John's paper is definitely one of the things that's being considered by the international community and the experts and academics looking at that. His uh, document deals with removal, which is slightly different from destruction, which is what the treaty would require us to do. But it wouldn't require Scotland to do that because they're the UK's weapons. We could insist that they were removed immediately within a removal framework, which at the moment is looking like being a maximum of five years for any country with a 10-year window for actually taking the things so completely apart that they could never be reconstituted as a nuclear weapon. So coupled with the fact that the UK government doesn't have anywhere else to put them, an independent Scotland acceding to the treaty, or even a pre-independent Scotland absolutely committing to that, really gives the UK government cause to recognise that its nuclear weapons are on a sugarly nail. This is something that the whole world wants. We had a, a very interesting meeting with an Irish parliamentarian at the cross-party group on nuclear disarmament in the Scottish Parliament. And they passed the terms of the treaty into their national legislation unanimously, both the lower and the upper house, it was unanimous. And our parliamentarians were pretty gobsmacked by that and said, how did you get it through? How was it unanimous? How did you manage that? And the guy just said, nuclear weapons, it's a no brainer. It's only in countries that actually have nuclear weapons that anyone is convinced that they have any functionality whatsoever. They're just unbelievably dangerous. It's all right to say the UK's nuclear weapons, uh, if Scotland demanded removal, wouldn't have anywhere else. To, this is the case, which makes the situation of the UK state desperate to ensure that doesn't happen. So we have to be aware of that. And we all know that in any negotiations, if you sense that the other side has a bit of flexibility, that there's a bit of movement there, then you really ramp up the pressure. You ramp up the bribery, you ramp up the threats, and Scotland would experience this from the rest of the UK and from NATO. But if you're absolutely clear that the other side is completely rigid and firm, you recognise you're on to something which you're not going to win. And therefore, you don't put the same effort in, which is why it's so, so important that our timescale, 
our program for this is very clear. We make it clear to all that this is a triple red line. Where they are is they're not going to release their hand, though I did take part in a, a recent Rusai seminar. It was done under Charter House rules, so you can't to say who said what and all the rest of it, and I will stick to that. And I put the following question. Every professional Navy in the world does contingency planning in terms of alternative basing. Does contingency planning take place in relation to, you know, the Trident fleet? In fact, all its, all its assets. But the moderator from Rusai confirmed that point even before I put the question. That contingency planning is part of their processes. John's paper, the John Ainsley's paper on the removal of Trident, it's called Nowhere to Go. It's available on the CMD website and it's a very carefully researched and conservative estimate of how long it would take to get rid of Trident from Scotland. It's accepted as, as an authoritative estimate at, at an international level. So that's, that's what John's paper is. The, the point I wanted to make about NATO is in relation to two reports that I kind of recent as very just in the last week or so produced. One is on spending on nuclear weapons, which, as everyone knows, is astronomical. But one of the things that is particularly notable from that report is the amount of spending that nuclear nuclear weapons producers spend on lobbying governments and on independent think tanks. And I can't remember a figure that is given to Rusi runs into absolutely enormous amounts of money that are paid to Rusi by nuclear weapons producers. And I think it's very important to be aware of that. And I'm very grateful to ICANN for producing this report. And you can access that on the ICANN website or on the Scottish version, which is nuclearband.scot. But the other report that they've just produced is uh, a, a report on NATO in relation to its own objectives. And I mean, all the way through the negotiations for the Treaty on the Prohibition of Nuclear Weapons, there was huge opposition from the US government, along with the other nuclear armed states. And a lot of that was expressed in rhetoric around NATO, which has a, a nuclear armed policy. But it is only a policy. It's not in the treaty. It's not an essential part of how NATO operates. Now, personally, I have a problem with military alliances um, uh, uh, which are not democratically controlled, of which NATO is definitely one of. But aside from that, there is absolutely no reason and everything in NATO's own stated objectives to suggest it should now be thinking about ceasing to be a nuclear armed state. If you're operating in a world where there are countries that are already bound by the terms of the treaty and you're looking at international financing and resourcing, it's crazy to be doing something that you may find yourself in a litigious, difficult situation in one country as opposed to another. Is it feasible and or realistic that Scotland can remove nuclear weapons and stay in NATO? I think the answer to that is that I don't want for other reasons to be in NATO. But I think if Scotland, before applying for NATO membership, had got that agreement and started the process of removing nuclear weapons, then I don't think there would be a rejection of NATO, Scotland's application for NATO membership for other reasons, because it's an organisation like so many organisations that wants to expand and develop, see this as part of its strength. Um, 
So in that sense, I, I don't think it would morally. I think there are other issues as long as the key dominant players of NATO and it, in its policy uh, was nuclear related. But just one point I, I would quickly like to put in, because it's one that will come up, will be used against us in any in independence campaign, is that there are not many Scottish jobs that are trident dependent. The warheads are built in Burfield, down in the south of England. It's in Barrow that the submarines are built. Trident missiles themselves come from the United States, go back there for servicing. So there is really comparatively little by way of jobs in Scotland. And there, there are more around the other submarine, UK submarines, uh, the Astute class and others, which are going to be increasing in number under existing plans. That is another issue that will have to be dealt with. But Faslane can be used as a, a, a military centre by an independent Scotland. If an independent Scotland would apply to become part of NATO on its own terms and could do so with its own terms and conditions, the paper that I referred to that ICANN have produced is aimed at countries that are already in NATO and how they they can attempt to negotiate with NATO that they give up their nuclear weapons. That's the direction of travel. So a new country enter, coming into membership of NATO would very easily be able to make that a term and condition of membership. Like Isabel, I, th I think it would be a, a retrograde step and it would tie uh, Scottish security to allies that are not necessarily likely to share our wishes to, to contribute to the international peace movement rather than uh, an aggressive expansion and the control of countries where we have no business. So you, you, you're both in agreement. Uh, Bob, will you quickly have your views on that? Yeah, yeah. my view is that it's incompatible for Scotland to be... Uh, saying they want rid of nuclear weapons and be part of NATO. NATO is defined as a nuclear club, uh, even though people may say otherwise. Uh, it's about power, it's about influence, it's about domination by certain big uh, powers in, in the world and having nuclear weapons as part of that. I think uh, by the SNP tying themselves up with NATO, the pressure will be put on them uh, to keep nuclear weapons, to delay uh, the removal of Trident from Scotland. Uh, it, it, I mean, I'm, I'm in favour of international agreements, but ultimately, as we know in the climate change movement, uh, agreements lead very little on an international level. It takes pressure from below, from ordinary people to campaign and fight to get rid of nuclear weapons. So I'm very much on the side of actually mass action, potentially civil disobedience to get rid of nuclear weapons. Uh, I don't think we can leave it to the politicians. Uh, uh, they will uh, renege, they will uh, obfus obfuscate, they, uh, they will delay. It's going to be ultimately, I think, down to the actions of ordinary people if they're going to get rid of nuclear weapons. Scotland uh, probably could remain in NATO. There's other issues about that which have been aired and I share many of them. But in terms of public opinion, uh, there are the elites that run things and there are publics. And this week, I mean, NATO is, 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 is an organisation with all different positions uh, in it, although the nuclear aspect is one we don't agree with. But take, for instance, the countries that already host American weapons Public and there, I can the same report. I think it's one of the reports I can reports Janice referred to. Belgium, 57%. These are people who think the American bombs in their countries should go now. Belgium, 57%. Netherlands, 58%. Germany, 83%. Italy, 74%. They're all in 
they're all uh, thinking that the American weapons should go. And in relation to the TPNW, which NATO doesn't like, of the publics in NATO, these are the results of some of the countries that think, you know, have been asked about signing up, NATO countries signing up to TPNW, the publics. Norway, 78%. Iceland, 86%. Belgium, 77%. Canada, 74%. Denmark, 78%. France, 67%. Germany, 68%. Italy, 87%. Netherlands, 78%. Spain, 89%. And even in the UK, 58% think that their government should sign up to the TPNW. And they're all in NATO. So we can use public pressure that Bob refers to, but also uh, to put on the pressure of the politicians. So therefore, I think that getting rid of Trident from Scotland is definitely a credible is, is, is definitely a credible option. Although various folk will say that it's incompatible, both from different positions. Folk are very pro-nuclear will say you can't do it, and some folk who think you know otherwise will say you know you need to membership is incompatible. But at the end of the day, NATO knows that Scotland, you know, it's not far from Ireland. So in that sense, the Scots could turn around and say, who cares? We don't need to be in NATO, you know. They, they know that. They know the public understand that. So we, we have that car. Basic public opinion. No, we're not going to be invaded by anybody. And the idea of NATO membership, public opinion, probably a slight majority in favour because of the media. But really, when it comes down to it, the public don't care. I wish they did care more, but that actually is a, a potential ace car for us to get rid of tried. Even in the oh, thank you. But we'll 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 concentrating on that idea of, of um the civil disobedience as, as the, the the furthest extent of uh, public public um opposition to Trident and possibly NATO. Janet, what's your thoughts on how the um, a mass movement would or could develop around the removal of Trident and also possibly our involvement in NATO? I think direct action at the base for a year was what delivered in a large part the political will to uh, vote in a government that clearly, you know, we won politically in Scotland. The, the, the argument about nuclear weapons is won. Politically, we've won the argument. The problem is that we're in complete democratic deficit. So removal of consent for these things becomes, a, 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 for me a, at least, a pressing matter, you know. And there are a number of different ways in which that could be done in terms of mass action at Sad Lane or stopping the convoys or uh, uh, there are all sorts of um, things that, that could be done and I would like to see them done. The UK government governs by consent. I agree wholeheartedly with Isabel. The idea that we can get rid of nuclear weapons with independence is a very large part of the reason why they Bought, fought, bit and scratched their way backwards from the last referendum and cheated in all sorts of ways that prevented us from obtaining our independence. Um, I, I think that I think we, we have to recognise that we have already won politically uh, on the issue of nuclear weapons. I, I think, uh, I mean, clearly uh, in terms of political representation in Scotland, uh, the argument has been won, I think. Uh, I mean, if you it's one of the touchstones of the independence movement. You go out and talk to people who are actually actively campaigning, particularly for independence. You find that one of the issues that fires them up is the whole issue of, of trident and nuclear weapons and, and getting rid of them. Uh, so I think, I think, I mean, obviously, to a certain extent, there's areas in Scottish society where the argument still 
holds and we still need to win. But I think for the majority of people uh, and certainly the majority of activists, uh, and I don't think that's just in the independence movement. If you look in the Labour Party and the trade union movement as well, I think you will find mass opposition to the sighting of nuclear weapons uh, at, at Faz Lane. The question for me really is how can we take that support and turn it into something uh, pre uh, <coughs> that actually is real, that gets rid of nuclear weapons. Now obviously uh, for a lot of people that's tied up with independence. Uh, and an independent Scotland, I think, would be a major step forward. But it doesn't guarantee we get rid of nuclear weapons. Uh, and I, I don't agree with that. There has to be pressure put on the Scottish government and politicians uh, to ensure that these promises are, are carried out. And in my view, uh, there is a compromise there in terms of their attitude toward, towards NATO, both in terms of the pressure that they will be put under to, to, to hold on to nuclear weapons and to delay their removal from Scotland, but also to be part of what will essentially still be a nuclear club. Uh, Scotland, if it's part of NATO, will still be part of an organisation which will use nuclear weapons. Uh, so uh, the, the kind of base of the movement has to ramp up the pressure, put pressure on the politicians in the, in the independence movement to actually carry out their pledge uh, in the same way as we've got to ramp up the pressure on them to uh, carry through on India Ref 2 and getting a second independence referendum. Well, I never take things for granted. Uh, I think you have to tie people in constantly. I think the, the crucial thing here is, as with many other things that have been discussed today, is planning, planning, planning. That it's not enough to have sweet words. What we have to do on all these issues and all the many other issues around independence is to ensure that we have well worked out, detailed transition steps towards it. And then we can go to the Scottish public and say, this is not just what we want, this is how we're going to do it. We don't have this just now. Well, I mean, we actually have more of the work done on the issue of Trident. We haven't got it done on a whole lot of other things, but that's what's got to take us forward. And that's what will give more confidence with the Scottish public if we can say this is how we're going to do it and this is the timescale in which we are going to do it. And Bill, Janet, Bob and Isabel, thanks very much for joining us. Now, what we're going to look at now is a panel session on how do we encourage more uh, no voting veterans to move to yes when we have our hopefully inevitable independent referendum. But I would like to welcome our two panellists uh, and ask them to do a short introduction. Uh, first, we have uh, Ross Denny, who some of you at the event will have met already. And also we have uh, Ruth. Can I mention earlier on, at the very start of this, these proceedings, um, you know, my name's Ross Denny. I served for 27 years in the British Army. Uh, Joined up as a young lad, age 17. Um, stayed there for the next 27 years, uh, jolling around the um, the lovely spots that the UK government decided to send me. I think the, the thing, as a veteran now, and having been a veteran for the last eight years now, I think um, I think there's various things we can do to attract veterans. I think the big point, and, uh, and I think Kat Carey mentioned this earlier in her chat, is to be honest, is not make false promises, tell veterans what we can do for them and how we can do it and follow up on that. So if we promise, you know, better facilities, better care, better mental health care, better hospital protections and deliver on that, and they can see that we deliver on that, then uh, they will come across in droves. Uh, my name is Ruth Watson. I'm an activist with Yes Kerry Muir. I also am the, the one of the media officers for the National Yes Network, which is a, 
a sort of a, an amorphous body of yes groups for the whole way across the length and breadth of Scotland. Um, so we sort of provide a connecting forum uh, and ways of people making contact with each other from across the different yes groups. So that could either be a local yes group or, for example, Veterans for Yes. I also am a, a former uh, Faslane Peace Camper. I lived at Faslane for a couple of years, sort of taking occasional forays down to Greenham. So I, I'm quite familiar with the inside of uh, at least of two of the bases across the UK and uh, and uh, some of Her Majesty's establishments as well uh, in other uh, capacities too, uh, owing to Peace Camp related activities, I hasten to add. How do I think we can encourage veterans to go to go from no to yes. It's not just veterans. It's you know, a, a, not, not, being a veteran to me sort of suggests somebody who has ceased serving. I think that also we're, we're looking at uh, people who are actively serving. I think a lot of people in the forces don't feel that their role is understood because a lot of the time they are because of the actions of the British government sending them to countries where they actually perhaps don't feel they have any business being. I feel often they feel misunderstood. Uh, and I think that that often their service is not valued in the way it might be because they are seen to be perhaps in, invaders rather than peacekeepers. Um, and I think that 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 for me, having having spoken to a number of people over the years about this, I think that of offering of a, a truly professional Scottish defence force where they can see that there's a strategy and they can see that their input is valued, that they're not just minions sort of your cannon fodder taking orders, but that they're going to be part of a dynamic and progressive defence force. Uh, you know, so so that whole thing about making a commitment not to take people into unjust wars uh, and where they where perhaps people can't hold their heads up because they 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 don't know why they are in a foreigner's country, you know? It's um I think that for a lot of people um being seen to be defending our country and being seen to be defending, you know, Sort of standing up for, for for looking after our people, all the people of Scotland. I think that's actually very important, um, and and offers great opportunities because I think you'll get more people coming in if they think that they're actually doing something that is a, a positive contribution rather than something that might be seen as you know sort of killing foreign babies. Well, I think first of all, you know, we can point to to the failures of the Westminster government. You know, the military covenant. Um, for people that, that don't know what that is, was is effectively the covenant between the government of the day and the armed forces to say that you, you know you will not be penalised because of your service in the armed forces. You know if you're injured, for example, in service, you will get suitable treatment. There was a there was an effort, a concerted effort, to put the armed forces covenant into uh, covenant into law, and that never happened. That was kiboshed mainly by the Tories. And now what it is, it's an it's an aspiration rather than law. So they broadcast a lot. You have the Armed Forces Covenant, but it is purely at the whims of whoever's in power in the day. It's not about the grand gestures, the flag-waving thing that Westminster seems to go about, you know, and painting poppies on tanks. It's about, you know, the practical thing that people can look at. So this is what we're going to do, and this is what we're doing to make it happen. Squaddies, soldiers, sailors, airmen as a whole are very sceptical, very cynical people. So anything you promise them will be taken with a pinch of salt. But if you deliver on that, they will support it and they'll get behind you. Had um, from Dave um, Dugan that said, a good start for a defence perspective for the electorate would be to outline how many more civilian and uniform jobs and the promotion opportunities that would be available and based in upholding a sovereign Scottish defence capability in Scotland um, compared to Scotland doing our bit within the UK. But Russ, would you agree that we often focus on things that aren't actually what's really important? For example, Karen talking about family and roles. And these are the things that when we're having conversations um, with serving or past veterans, we really need to concentrate on. 
I think that having a distinct career progression, if we're looking at a defence force moving forward, then the prospect of people being horrifically injured and suffering the trauma that comes from active combat is significantly reduced. So I think that right from the get-go, we're improving conditions for a professional defensive force right there. I think that for those veterans who have been shamefully, absolutely horrifically abandoned and 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 thrown on the scrap heap, it's no wonder the, the, the drug use and, and alcoholism rates are so high. I think that, that the point that they is significant because if you're looking at a defence force, there there is a role for veterans who choose who would like to be involved still, you know, in terms of either retraining into the IT side of things or into procurement or or other aspects. We will need people bringing those veterans back in who wish to be involved. I think would would give us back a, a huge skills base as well, and there will be, of course, less disruption for families because you're not having folk being shipped all over the world and to you know two years in one base and two years in another and get the inside of your taps checked before you move house to make sure that you yeah, know it's okay. Yeah. You know, veterans know all this stuff and they're very practical people. How can we get more veterans to tell the stories that you and Cliff have been telling today, and and also the other couple of veterans who have been on with us, including Kat and that wonderful letter that we got? How can we? encourage more veterans to say what's important to them to help us speak to other people in that community. I can only tell from my own experience about how I how I came to this and what encouraged me to speak out was things like this was the realization that I wasn't the outlier that I wasn't alone that I wasn't just this this weird sort of cuckoo in the nest if you like that that veterans can and do support an independent Scotland. So it's getting the message out saying, you know, you're welcome in this movement. There's mm. nothing that prohibits you being part of this. So it's about giving them a place to speak, a place to do it, and a listening ear, most importantly, to say that, you know, we, you will be listened to. I think for a lot of us, especially when I, I mean, I, I was an independent supporter in the military, which is not something that you would bring up in casual conversation because there is the, the perception that you're in this very pro-union organisation. And actually, when you do open your mouth, you realise that's, that's not necessarily the case. There is, the, the military is a is a mirror of, of civilian life. So you have people from all backgrounds, all political persuasions and all ideals and beliefs. Um, so to get more people across, do what you're doing, Willie, and keep pushing out things like this. Um, keep speaking to people, um, interact with them on social media and tell them that, that they are, they're not in a minority. In fact, they're in a, a growing majority as it happens going forward. I would go one step further and say that I think that one of the things that we need to do is to actively reach out to veterans. And, and it might be a good idea for the Scottish government, for example, to get a, a people's forum together to say, please can veterans or acting service people come forward and give us your views. If you would like to be involved in helping develop a future defence force for Scotland, tell us what you think. I think when people feel heard and genuinely listened to, they're much more likely to engage and believe that the process will be one that reflects their experience and their views. Part of the, the issue I have when we start talking about veterans is that oftentimes it focuses on the big questions, defence, trident, foreign policy. And in reality, most of your veterans and your forces are, are interested in how it affects them directly. So when you talk about career progression, about paying conditions, about values and standards, those are, those are really, really strong messages when it comes to attracting the rank and file. Because for a lot of people, the big questions about nuclear weapons and NATO and UN and things like that. They're all decisions to be made above our pay grade. 
I mean, in the past, uh, the local battalions and you know the sort of the, the localized nature of of the armed forces and and uh, the different sort of uh, core within them meant that people knew Scotties. You know, they knew there was people that they knew of that. Well, you know, it wasn't this kind of like, oh, well, that's them over there and that's us over here. We're civilians and they're Squaddies, or because people were they were from your community. And I think that losing the local battalions and the local names has made a big difference. I think that for an independent Scotland, an independent defence force, having the Black Watch, having the Royal Scots, having the traditional names that people can get behind that have a locus, having the Gordon Highlanders, having that locus back, you, you get local pride, but you also get local recruitment. I know that, in, I mean, my son occasionally says, oh, he'd be quite interested in being in the armed forces, but only if it was a defensive force. He doesn't want to go out and go to war in another country, but he is very interested in being involved in making his own country better and being part of something that is that he can see has value and has worth and that isn't he that he isn't going to be co-opted into something which which he thinks is immoral. And I think that involving serving most of the I mean I don't know a huge amount anymore, but those those within the armed forces that I do know of, they're there because they want to be they want to be technicians or engineers or they're interested in that aspect of their career and and making their country a better place. Having having this whole thing about you know going out to war, that moment you're going to go, oh my goodness, are we the bad guys? You know what I mean? It's, it's nobody wants to feel that way. I think the UK armed forces recruitment has has tried this really really well. It's about selling um, the opportunities, so they really diminish the the kind of fighting foreign wars part, and they it's all about you know flying aircraft or fixing aircraft or. Are, are doing the jobs and mm-hmm. I think actually for a, for a Scottish Defence Force if that's what you want to call it actually having um, a defined career path in almost kind of apprenticeship type level you know you join the armed forces um, it's an alternative to um, you know going on to university or to doing or, or to doing an apprenticeship it's it's something else that could be put on put on your CV to say to say that you've done it and it becomes really attractive proposition then it's another avenue for people people to follow, um, and it's not and it's not just an avenue that people follow straight out of school. If you yeah. have a professional, if you have a professional defensive force, then somebody who has had a career, for example, in medicine, might then choose to go in and go. Well, actually, no, I, I could be I could be involved in rehabilitation, or I could be involved in you know. So, I mean, my my grandfather uh, was was actually one of the pioneers of plastic surgery, and he. He did that in the trenches in um, behind the lines in the First World War. He sort of helped people keep a face or save their lives. And he was—he actually was—he—he was—he was determined. He was a colonel back in the back in the day, and uh, before he died in the Second World War. And and he was a strong advocate for peace. And he he very much said that he thought that governments should not be allowed to go to war unless they consulted with medical surgeons first or had medical surgeons on the war board. Because he said if people could see what people what the troops go through, they would not send them to war. And I think that we 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 have to facilitate this this mentality where we value our armed forces, we value the people and their potential sacrifice. If somebody were to try and invade us, and, and I think that is less likely, I think we're much more likely to have somebody hiring a fishing boat and going dredging up all our power lines and killing our internet as an attack rather than actually a, an invasion force. I think boots on the ground is less likely now. So I think that there's much more of an opportunity to show the attractiveness of, you know, you can go and you can be a doctor or you can be a, a phys ed teacher and then you can join the armed forces. And that is an integrated part of your career. And when you come out of that, 
there's there, that's going to be respected and valued and i think that that then makes it much more of a cohesive and respected route and that means we're much less likely to see the abomination of former uh, former squaddies or or folk from the navy sitting on our street corners in the rain drunk and traumatized i mean i think that we 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 have to find a way of fixing what has gone really wrong with people who have tried to do the right thing absolutely and 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 russ one one way to do that or probably the most important way to do that is actually to have veterans involved and it's great that you and cliff and others are are so involved and 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 where we're trying to move towards with an independent scotland and independent defense for him simon jones has just said um in disability rights we have a saying nothing about us without us how can we make sure that veterans are plugged into the decision making uh, process that affects them any thoughts on that russ well, I think um, I think it was mentioned earlier. You know, when you talk about um, the shape of a, a Scottish Defence Force, you talk about training and recruiting. You know, you've already got a pool of specialists there. You've got all, all your veterans from Scotland that have already have all these specialisms. They already have the knowledge, the background, the experience. So you know that. So that could be the the core cadre of of your your future formation of a Scottish Defence Force. Um, there's always a worry that that things get politicised. Um, that it that it's that's taken a hand, but you're right. I think if you can involve veterans, um, not just veterans, but people that have experience of of interaction and dealing with the forces as well, um, you know, you know, you know, people like um, people like like yourself that Ruth that were uh, that probably were at the sharp end of of some of the things at times. You know, what what was the positives you took from that? What was the negatives you took from that? You know, how can that inform? Um, how the Scottish government or the Scottish Defence Force approaches these things in future, if it needs to. So, uh, the people are there. The people with the knowledge, the experience, are already there. Um, and it's about using them. It just takes the political will to include them in the conversation. Because, as you're finding out when you do things like that, we are more than ready to speak about what's important to us. One of the things okay. I was very struck by was when uh, at at Faslane and at Greenham. We would get people, we would get get squaddies or, or folk from the, the, the Navy. I'm not quite sure if, if folk in the Navy are squaddies or not, I'm afraid. If they, but, um, <laughs> if, uh, but we'd get them We'd get them sneaking over in the, in the, at, at night, after dark, we'd get them sneaking over to the fires or to, to the caravans because they wanted to ask us. They felt they had a, a real conflict of conscience because they wanted to defend their country but because people, you know, I want people to defend my country. You know what I mean? But 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 they were they were really very much um, very disturbed by what was happening with with having a nuclear uh, armed force and and the immorality of it. And and I think that 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 hasn't gone away at all. And you just have to look at Lord Mountbatten. I mean, Lord Mountbatten. If you if you go to the Imperial War Museum, you can read his speeches against nuclear weapons. And 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 I think that I think that. For most, for most people, they can see that it is ludicrous for soldiers to be expected to go and do their duty and, and do their service, do what's being asked of them without adequate, without adequate equipment. And yet we're spending billions of pounds on a hunk of metal that can't ever be used or it's going to destroy everything. And, and that, that, that sense of betrayal, I think, has always come across to me as being very palpable within the armed forces. And, and some say it may well have cost, you know, been one of those things that kind of cost Mountbatten his life in the end. Um, but that's, um, that's another view altogether. 
Great. And, and, and Russ, when we're thinking about the, you know, the, the definitive and the definite things that we can do to encourage more veterans and, and current service personnel to vote, yes. And Kat Carey had said that you've got to be careful that, um, that kind of rhetoric, and if it becomes empty rhetoric, can be really damaging. But um, I just wondered if there was one thing that the current uh, Holyrood administration could do, and that is to write a new military covenant for an independent Scotland. Is that something that um, you know is underway or um, is, I suppose, even right at the top of that, is that something you think would be a good idea? And Ruth, I'd be interested to hear you reviewing that as well. What can we do that's a little bit more concrete than just kind of empty rhetoric? Um, I, I think you're right. I think the, the military covenant is, it's broadcast by, by the UK government as this massive piece of work that supports veterans, but it's, it's really not worth the paper it's written on because, you know, there's no, there's no emphasis on people having to do it. And so I think if the Scottish government came up with something like that, because a lot of the things that, are, that, that, that the Covenant talks about, which is access to maybe medical services, mental health services, housing support, all these kind of things, these are all things that are already in the, in the purview of the Scottish government. So they could do this already. They could say, if you are a, a serving soldier or a veteran, you know, we are going to mirror the parts of the military government that we can, and we're going to give them a statutory underpinning. That's a real practical thing that just takes some political will to do and actually wouldn't involve changing a great deal of what we already do because we already have some really good support for, for veteran services in Scotland. Um, veterans First Point, which is a NHS service, which includes peer support workers, psychologists, um, therapists, psychiatrists, and all, that's already there. And, and I know speaking to colleagues down south, they're trying to mirror that. So there's already seven. Brilliant, there. Russ. Sorry, just just a second, just a second, because um, we've we've got a few veterans who are on the chat in uh, YouTube, and um, and and I just love you, just love to hear from them if they think um uh, more work on a Scottish military covenant would be something that would help them persuade uh, the other um people that they know to to, to vote yes, because that that would be really good to have their views. And for the people who are watching on Hopin, it's it's been so good today hear from veterans like Cliff and Russ but there's obviously a lot more there's clearly a lot more as Russ says it mirrors Scottish society as a whole uh, and there, there are people uh, there are veterans on uh, YouTube commenting on, on what we are covering and there's also um, former service personnel uh, on the event so that's really really good to hear so please do let us know your, your opinions on that sorry Russ to, to cut you off there I think that's an important point to, to ask for the audience no, no, Ruth, have you your views? I can't remember what I was saying. So, <laughs> well, I was, I was, I was listening to you, Russ. It's, um, I think that it is very important that the phrase, you know, deeds, not words, and and as Russ says, the Scottish government could already be doing some of the things that that the well, I think the Scottish government is already doing some of the things that it needs to do, um, having having seen some of the work that's been done to to look after veterans. But I just keep coming back to this whole thing is, is yes, we need to have a, a, a covenant, but actually it's in the, in, the, in the form of an employment contract. You know, if you look at health and safety at work, if somebody gets damaged at work, then the, the employer is duty bound to, to, to look after them or recompense them. How, how much more can you in a country ask of somebody that, that if somebody goes off and, and gets damaged or traumatized in the line of the work that they've been asked to do by their employer and their employer has put them in that situation, then surely the deal is you get looked after afterwards. One of the things I come back to is that with a defence force within Scotland, we would have less of that kind of trauma and less of that kind of damage because people would not be exposed to fighting. If it did come down to the fact that people are exposed to, to fighting either through training or 
or because there was an incident that they that they were trying to protect us from, then you would also have the knowledge that you were doing it for a country that was actively grateful because people were in part of the community. I think there's a big, big problem if you have people in regiments that are detached from their communities. When people come back, they have no community left to look after them. And that's one of the reasons why I think that having community-based regiments actually makes a lot of sense because people come from that community and when they come back, their community is still there to help be a part of looking after them. If, But I, I think that absolutely, um, you know, I, I have a relative that actually works at Erskine House as a physiotherapist working with, with people, trying to get them literally back on their feet. And, and we need to have more of that and we need to, it needs to be meaningful. Great. And Russ, would you um, would you echo those statements from Ruth? Um, I, I would. I mean, um, you know, we're, we're in the 21st century now, so the army has has diminished considerably. I mean, the reason uh, so so things like local battalions is really difficult because the army's got smaller. But I think also an issue with that was was the recruitment. You know, the the MOD really struggled with recruitment, which is why we have you know kind of so many people from. From foreign and Commonwealth countries in the British Army, there's a there's a big reliance on on people from on Fijians, uh, Nepalese, and, and that to make up the numbers. So the the battalions were already being um, uh, kind of watered down a little bit. Now, mm-hmm. don't get me wrong, the people that come in from foreign and Commonwealth countries are absolutely exceptional soldiers and really really good at what they do. Um, but they had no they had no contacts with with the local community. Um, so part of that is you make the armed forces a better proposition, a more attractive proposition for people. You target your recruiting in these areas, move away from from the historical uh, Westminster uh, policy of targeting deprived and low-income neighbourhoods to, to garner your cannon fodder. You make it a modern, professional, attractive army, and you may well be able to come back to that aspect of having proper local recruitment and have a real presence in these places rather than, that, than that absolutely now, which is just the old kind of museums popping up which is all that remains that absolutely sorry to just jump in there ross but that absolutely comes back to to the view that i hold firmly which is that it has to be a defense force i know that my son who's a strapping young lad you know when we go out a couple of, we were out a couple of years ago at, at glam's castle and there was you know they had the the, the black watch was there sort of hoping to recruit folk mm. And and my son, who's a strapping young lad, sort of was interested in some of the toys, you know. And uh, and and the, the 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 recruiters were around him like vultures. And I was just like, nah, no way, it's not happening. You are not going to Iraq to you know mm-hmm. to get in, involved in somebody else's war. Mm-hmm. And and I could you know they were like, oh, uh, but but actually that's the thing. I have had lots of conversations with actually most of my children about about being involved in some way with a defensive force, and none of us have an issue with that because that is seen as being doing your duty. And it is the, the I would much rather, I don't, I don't have a problem with my youngsters going out, for example, to, to help with search and rescue or to, to you know, sort of deal with fisheries or the, even going overseas to, to do training if you're, for example, working with UN as peacekeepers. I don't have an issue with that because I actually see that as part of a, a global moral obligation to try and help people. I mean, I don't have a problem with helping people. I do have a problem with being used as a as a tool to go and take somebody else's oil or somebody else's yeah. land. Yeah. And and I think that, yeah. that is one of the reasons why recruitment is such an issue. 
Yeah, it certainly went down well in the comment, that, that idea of recruitment, and also the kind of really clear idea, I think, of what is the, not just the proposition that we go to um, veterans and people who are currently serving, but to our nation to say this is what our defence force does, and this is how we're going to treat it. And, and you know, again, one of the key themes as we're, as we're closing up now is, is certainly, um, please let me know in the, the chat if you agree with this, but I think one of the key themes is that we have to start preparing now and even before that is discussing, and this is what we're trying to do with, with events like this, is, you know, we're never going to solve anything here. If we can get one positive thing that comes out of this, which I think is certainly this idea of a military covenant, then I think we've done something really positive. But we have to start planning. We have to be much clearer on what our proposition is. And there's a lot of areas as we build up to independence that we can have a lot of confidence around. There's a lot of areas we're not too sure about, but I think things like what a defence force would look like, what the military covenant would be like, I think is something that we should we should have done and dusted, you know, very very soon. So hopefully we can move towards things like this. Um, Russ, Ruth, thanks so much for your involvement in our in our panel. I really appreciate your time to to, to join us today, and Russ for your help uh, putting this event together. Thanks so much, Ruth and Russ. Well, that's us come to the end. Um, uh, it'd be really great to have your involvement with all of your questions. I hope you've enjoyed today and I hope you've taken something away from it. And again, to summarise, I think that we have said that you know we've got a clear idea as a nation what we want our defence, our, our army to do. And I think we have to be much more vocal to politicians in Westminster and in Holyrood about what we want that to actually look like. And I think it's really important that we start planning and we start having these conversations. So please do share the content once we're done here and we upload it next week uh, to YouTube. And thanks very much for your involvement. And please keep supporting um, the work that Independence Live does to have these conversations. We're really trying to tell Scotland's story differently from how it is in other media. So we really appreciate your involvement today. Thanks for staying that little bit longer with us and enjoy the rest of your weekend. Thanks very much.